Turn with me to Genesis chapter 4, please. Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to read the first 15 verses. We're going to really concentrate on about one or two today, but chapter 4, verse 1 through 15 kind of gives us some context. Of course, Adam and Eve have been removed from the Garden of Eden after uh, failing to keep the one and only commandment that God had given them. Uh, They were punished for this and cast out. I'll read with verse 1. It says, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare a brother, Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought the fruit of the ground, an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the first of his flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why are you wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, thou shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel, thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which have opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tellest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shall thou be on the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain lest anyone finding him should kill him. And we'll end there. You can continue reading later if you'd like to, to see the remainder of the story. Cain goes out and has children, um, founds a city, uh, at least one of the children, Enoch, we know fairly well in the scripture. But I want to talk today specifically about the verse that kind of comes in the middle. And I want to talk about the things that are crouching at the door. I want to talk about sin and I want us to understand the context here of what this tells us and how this gives us advice for how we should live. Because I think within this scripture, although this is an accounting of the story of Cain and Abel and the way that the Lord uh, worked with Cain and, and received Abel, I think it gives us good guidance for how we should live today and gives us some idea of things that we need to be mindful of. Now, as I began to suggest, the context here is at some point, uh, we don't know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden. They were cast out. We don't know how long they were outside of the garden before they had children or how long this, in fact, happened. We see time is no doubt condensed greatly within just a few chapters in the book of Genesis. It is entirely possible that they remained very close to uh, the Garden of Eden. If you recall in the previous chapter when they were cast about, Um, a cherubim was put in the gate to guard the entrance. They could not return to the garden. 
If you see in other parts of the scripture, a cherubim is a specific type of angel that usually has to do with the worship of God. So it's entirely possible that they stayed close to the garden and uh, sought and got advice from God about how to live, how to sacrifice, how to worship him, and were nearby. And that seems to make some sense when Cain is cast out uh, later on. But nevertheless, they seem to have had instruction on what type of sacrifice to give God. Now, we don't get until later into the scriptures when the law is given, what God tells the Hebrew people specifically about how they're supposed to give offerings and sacrifices. And that specifically a sacrifice or an offering for sin requires some type of blood offering. And so a grain offering or something that you grow would not have been sufficient to cover a type of sin. We also see very importantly in this is the um, inner um, way that these two men are giving a sacrifice. One seems to give the very best that he had, the fat part, the the best, the firstborn of his flock of sheep or whatever it was that they were uh, raising at that time, while Cain just gives some of what he had. And it's important for us to remember that when we talk about worshiping the Lord and we talk about praising the Lord and we talk about doing what God wants us to do, that we can certainly go about doing it reluctantly or because we feel like we have to, or we can truly focus on the way that God wants us to worship him, the way that he wants us to give to him, which is joyfully and which is of the bounty and the first of what it is that we have. And so from this, we see that, that um, uh, the sacrifice that Cain, give, Cain gave was not as good because A, he didn't have the right spirit about it, if you will, and B, likely he was to be giving of an animal sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. And so we need to remember this when we go through here. In fact, Hebrews 11.4, just read the one verse very quickly. It says, By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God gave approval to his gifts. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. And so there seems to be some type of difference that is being drawn here between Cain and Abel. Where Abel was, out of his spirit of his, of his heart, giving the sacrifice was not only appropriate, but something that he was trying to do, indicating that he had faith in God, where perhaps Cain was not doing as much. Interesting in all of this is the fact that Cain wasn't very happy when God didn't receive his sacrifice. And so he looked dejected. He was downtrodden. He was uh, angry, if you will. And he looked this way. You ever looked angry? My family's going to laugh at me. Ever felt dejected? Ever seen somebody who is? We recognize that pretty well, don't we? Now, here's the really hard question. You ever been rejected, angry, or felt upset over something God told you to do or not to do? I actually hope you can answer yes. Because if you can answer yes, it means you're at least listening to what God wants you to do. It sounds crazy, though, doesn't it? If God comes and says, I want you to do this, and then you're angry about it, it happened to me once. It's happened to me several times. Most specifically, the Lord called me to preach. Some of the most bitter, horrible times of my life, <laughs> and by extent, my family to some degree. I was so upset over it, I got lockjaw and I couldn't eat, couldn't hardly talk. 
and uh, probably looked down and dejected most of the time. But eventually, I did what God wanted me to do, and I gave in. But here we see very clearly that God told Cain exactly what he should do. Cain didn't want to do that. And then because of that, he became upset, annoyed, uh, wroth, indignant, all these things. And what's so interesting is not only do I think Cain was probably upset with God, he was also upset with who? Well, his brother. Because his brother was doing what was right. Anybody else ever experienced this before? Upset at somebody else because they're doing what they're supposed to be doing? Hmm. See, this is really important. We also can't forget that Cain was older. So younger brother was outshining older brother. There was probably a lot of things going on here that we don't have recorded. So Cain was angry and had no reason to be angry because God had apparently clearly told them what they should do, told them about the state of their sacrifice with a free and open heart, that they should uh, sacrifice something that costs them something, the best that they can have uh, to God. And when Cain didn't do this, he was angry not only at God, but also um, his brother. And then I want you to notice very carefully what God comes and does. You see, God could have known and did know that Cain was angry. And he could have said, well, if you're going to be angry, just forget you. But God came and entreated or came to him and asked him and began to work with him because God wanted what? God wanted Cain to do what was right. We get this idea and this image that God is going to come and to smite everyone, that God is perpetually angry at us, and that all he does is punish us. But the reality is God wants us to conform to what is best for us, and what is best for us is what he tells us to do. And so he comes to us repeatedly. I've said this over and over again. You can start in the beginning of this scripture and go all the way to the end. And well, there are some people, some men and women in this scripture who we can say they did well. The real beauty and the real focus of the scripture is not the men and women who are in it, but the fact that God comes time and time and time again, drawing us to him. You see, it's a book of complete failure on our part but a God who comes and wants us to follow him. So it's not that we should say, well, Abel is better than Cain and that somehow he overachieved things. It's about God going to both men and wanting both of them. And so it brings up some very important questions in our lives. How often has God come to us and tried to correct us? How often has God sent that condemning spirit into our lives and we know that we're about to or are doing something that we shouldn't do? And how often do we ignore it? How often do we take that in and and confess and say, God, you are correct. I need to change and do something different or, or do something that I haven't been doing. Whatever it is that God comes, God is always wanting you to be with him and to be more like him. And he is continuously pursuing us. In fact, this is what the scripture says. How long will this world continue until God can get all those he can to come to him? We see that God is a loving God. Now, there's absolutely, obviously, we saw in this passage, there is justice. There is punishment. But God came to Cain to try and get him to change his ways. Spoke to him. And I wonder how often... God speaks to us 
and gives us good advice and we just refuse to do it. I want to look at verse 7. That's really the thrust of where I'd like to spend some time today. It says, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. This is a little bit confusing in the, in the King James, and honestly, some references I looked up, so this is just a hard verse to uh, interpret from the, from the old Hebrew uh, text anyway. But I think it has some very important things for us to say. Uh, again, it says, um, this idea of being accepted, so if doest well, uh, will you not be accepted? That actually could be translated lifted up. Lift it up. And it comes with it, this idea from the previous verse that if we do well, our countenance will be lifted up. Let's think about this in our personal lives for just a minute. How many times are we dejected, angry, bitter, upset, cast down, if you will, because of our own sins? And how much better would it be if we were not involved in those sinful activities? See, what the scripture is telling us, and what God, I think, is telling us, if we do the right thing, what happens? We're lifted up. This is why it's so tragic to look around to our world and our society today, and not only are our, our phones keeping us always looking down, but so much of the weight of sin is always keeping us down, whether we realize it or not. And if we would simply let God take away our sins and we would focus on him, we would begin to be lifted up in the sense that we would what? We would look up unto him. We would be more delightful. We would be happier. We would be looking unto him, which is up. And so we really need to consider how often we are bound down by all the things of this world. Rather than a gloomy and despondent mood, downcast looks, because of sin, we should have our head lifted up, lifted up high because we are a child of the king. Now, God tells him a couple of things here, and I want to point this out. It says, if you do well, shall you not be accepted? There's a couple of things in here. First, Cain had to acknowledge that he was sinning. That's really important. We don't like to do that very often. We don't like to get called out when we're wrong. But we must at some point acknowledge the fact that we are doing something wrong. But you know what? It doesn't end there. Because I think Cain knew what he was doing was wrong. It's probably why he began to be more vengeful and eventually murdered his brother. So certainly we must acknowledge that what we've done is wrong. But we must actually repent of our sins. We must actually repent of our sins. This is what's left out of so many pulpits today where we talk about uh, believing in Jesus, but we don't ever talk about repenting of our sins. That means that at some point when God reveals to your life and shows you just what a horrible life you've been living, just what a horrible sinner you are, that you not only acknowledge the fact that you are lost and undone and a sinner, but you repent for that and seek his forgiveness. Absolutely vital. I'll also point out here, it says, um, except if thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted. Now, I've said this numerous times before, but I want to make sure and point it out here. Again, being a little critical, this concept of accepting Jesus doesn't exist in Scripture. Jesus Christ accepts us. Amen. We don't accept him. Amen. Jesus Christ accepts us. 
Now, that's not a works-based salvation. Some people may think that that is some type of confusing uh, concept here, that I have to do something so good for him to accept me, or I have to be so good or give so much money. All of that is complete garbage. But the reality is, until I acknowledge the fact that I'm a sinner and come before him seeking forgiveness, and he accepts my apology and forgives me, I've gone exactly nowhere. And we see that over and over again when that word in the English is used. It's always God accepting us and never the other way around. So God comes to Cain and gives him a warning and says, look, you are going down a dark path. This is going to be a problem. Do not go this direction. But he goes even further than that. He gives a warning for the future that I think all of us can take today. He tells Cain, sin crouches at your door. Sin crouches at your door. I want to talk about that for just a minute. Crouches at your door. It gives this idea of a wild beast just waiting to kill you. Surely all of us have seen maybe, maybe not a wild beast, but a, a cat or a dog or something that stalking something that's going to get and it's just waiting and all of a sudden it just pounces and grabs whatever it's going after. Maybe perhaps you've seen on television or some other thing, some, a lion or something like that that's doing the exact same thing. Is that where you want to be? Ready for something to grab you? Ready for something that's sitting just outside your door waiting for you? You see, the reality is that's what sin is. It's after us. It wants you, and it wants me, and it wants to have its way with us. And it is waiting eagerly, poised to pounce and destroy us. We're reminded of this in 1 Peter 5, 8. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Seeking someone to devour. This is the way of sin. It wants to control us and it wants to have its way with us. Now here's the thing, and this is the point I really want to make today. Many, many people will play with sin and purposely let it come inside your house. Oh, I can control it. Just a little bit. No one sees, no one knows. If you have this idea that whatever sin it is, that you think you can just invite it inside and control it, you are mistaken. You cannot and will not win that battle on your own. We cannot allow sin to come inside. Now, this is talking about a house, but I think metaphorically, let's talk about it as our lives, in that there is sin at the door waiting to come in, and somehow we think, well, I can just do a little bit of it, and it'll be okay. I can just touch its tail. It won't turn around and grab me. I can just have a little bit. I can just do this, or I can take all of it, but I think I can somehow control it. Brothers and sisters, trust me, you may for a time think that you have tamed the sin, but it will come at you and will consume you when you least expect it. Do not let sin enter your lives. You must guard your heart. You must guard the door, if you will, with everything that you have, because if you give it an inch, 
but I'll take a mile. This is borne out over and over and over again in Scripture, both in the Proverbs and examples that we have of men and women in the Scriptures who have fallen victim to it. There is this idea in our society that somehow we can just do a little bit of this and it'll be okay. That is not the answer. Many, many people have purposely let sin into their lives and it has destroyed them. Now, there's other groups of people those who don't purposely let sin in, but those who might be oblivious to it. Going back to the example, the metaphor, uh, the uh, image we have here in the scripture, is that sin is crouching at the door waiting to have you. As I said, some people open the door and say, well, come on in, let's party. Other people walk outside having no idea there's a lion waiting to eat them. We don't want to be either. That's why the Bible tells us that we should be... um, as wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Brothers and sisters, we must be aware of the sin that's trying to get at us. We must be aware when we go out into the world what it is that's going to try and attack us. And the best way we can stay safe is to be with Jesus. So we must not purposefully be going out and letting sin come into us. We must not be oblivious to it either. That means we have to be aware of the things that are going on in our society today. Now, one of the best things I did over the last few weeks, uh, and I, I told you all this a few weeks ago when I left, is uh, I didn't have internet phone service for about se- seven days. It was fantastic. It was really nice. And uh, one night, I'm, I'm sitting down where we were at, and I flipped the TV on because there was a little uh, channel that would tell you like which direction we were going, all this kind of stuff. And I'm flipping through to find it, and the news pops up, and it popped up for like 10 seconds. I was like, ooh. I was like, no, I don't want to know. I just kept, I kept going. I've hardly looked at the news since I've gotten back. That's been a really healthy thing for me, I'll just be honest with you. Uh, I mean, it's not going great anyway, but I can't control it. At the same token, we must be aware of the risks that are out there, if that makes sense. I'm not saying you have to read every article on, you know, the impending World War III that we're getting ready to go into or who's building nuclear missiles or who's killing who. But the idea that we need to be aware of what the world is out there, we must not go into it blind. We must understand the risks that are there. We must not let people uh, take us captive by telling us lies and telling us that, oh, this evil sin that's right outside the door, it's okay, just come on out. We must be very careful. We must remember that our evil passions are always ready to take advantage of what the world offers, and we tend not to listen to God. But brothers and sisters, we cannot ignore the sin that is dangerously near us. I don't know what temptations are just outside your door. I don't know what you're going to face when you walk out these doors. I don't know what temptations you'll face tomorrow morning. I don't know what temptations you'll face when you go to your place of work or to your school or to whatever you do this week. But be on guard, because sin is waiting everywhere you go to pounce and to take you. We cannot risk playing with it. We cannot invite it inside of our homes. We cannot go out to it. Rather, the Bible says we must rule over it. This is interesting, isn't it? Rule over it. If thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be its desire, 
and thou shalt rule over him. We get this idea that sin desires us, and that's exactly what it does. Sin might seem like fun. Sin might seem like fulfilling some type of service, but the reality is it comes to assault and seduce, to conquer, to dominate, and to destroy you. If you recall a few weeks ago, John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. What can't be stolen will be killed, and what can't be killed will be destroyed. Three very different things. That's what sin does. That's what the thief does. That is what the adversary does. In fact, Jesus said to Simon in Luke 23 and 31, And the Lord said to Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. This is a very serious matter. It's not a popular topic in churches today. It's not something we list very often. We can go throughout our daily lives and think, well, it doesn't really bother me. I'm not really tempted to do anything really bad. Or maybe I'm pretty good. This is not at all the case. In fact, sometimes I think, excuse me, the reason that maybe in our personal lives we don't face many challenges is because God, I'm sorry, Satan has us right where he wants us. Because we've been lulled into a false sense of security. We must be careful because sin wants us and it wants to destroy us. It wants to kill us and it wants to rule over us. So how do you rule over it? That's what the scripture says. How do you rule over it? Well, that's a really good question. The Bible has some really good similar questions. Job 41, can you pull Leviathan with a hook? Can I pull out a hook and capture the greatest fish that's ever lived in the water? What's the answer? (laughs) No. Jeremiah 13 and 23, can an Ethiopian change his skin? No. Can a leopard his spots? No. Then also you can do no good who are accustomed to doing evil. Well, now we have a serious problem, don't we? Have you followed along? Do you see that sin is sitting just outside of our house, just outside of our heart, if you want to call it that, waiting, eagerly poised to jump, to rip us to shreds, to kill us, to lead us down the wrong path? That is what the enemy wants to do, to absolutely destroy us. And the problem is, I can't do anything about it. You can't do anything about it. This is a real problem. So what do we do? We look to the only one who can. You see, the reality is this. You can be a very, quote-unquote, good person. You can try your hardest to set your desires in the right way. In fact, many of us probably set New Year's resolutions, which probably most of us, being the 14th, have already failed on. We can try all we want to to do the right thing, but the reality is, absent the power of Jesus Christ, we will never fully overcome sin in this world. 
And once we are saved, we can try to do all the right things. But again, absent the sustaining daily and almost constant contact with God, we will never, ever be able to overcome sin in our lives because he is the only one who is sinless. He is the only one that was born as a man without a sin nature, who was tempted in every way, who overcame sin and is seated at the right hand of God, having conquered everything. The only way out is Jesus Christ. The only way to avoid the crouching sin, the only way to not let the sin into our lives, the only way to push it out the door once you've let it in, the only way to conquer anything is not through my own ability, not through me trying to be good, but through God who desires to help. That's why he went to Cain and said, careful, this is what's going to happen. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. In a sense, God is telling you today, be careful. Don't think you can rule this. Don't think you can do this on your own. Don't think you're going to get by. You have to go to him. Hebrews 12 and 24 says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Excuse me. Tying this all in together near the end of the scriptures, we see the writer of Hebrew, inspired by by the Lord, tying the beginning in with the end. Ultimately, what happened is we needed something greater than ourselves to pay the penalty for sin. We needed someone greater than us to conquer the temptation that we have to sin. We needed something more than the sacrifice of an animal that Abel did and did correctly. We need the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from all sin once and for all. And until we have that, sin has already captured us. Sin has already captured us. And so I ask you today and I challenge you today to think through this scripture and find somewhere in this account where you are. Perhaps you have been saved and you are going about your life and you are oblivious to the sin that's lying just outside of your door, just outside of your heart. Brothers and sisters, be very careful what you start walking into. Know the ways of the world, not that you can engage with them, but so that you can avoid them and seek God for help. Perhaps you have been saved, but you are thinking, well, I can, I can let this come into my life just a little bit. I can control it for a season. I can do this just a little bit. Or no one knows, brothers and sisters, God knows and God says no. Let us not forget that sin also, in the other way, is not doing what God wants you to do. Sin can be not doing what God wants wants you to do. So maybe those of us who've been saved are being told to do something and we are being disobedient and therefore in sin, sin has us when we are not abiding to what he has told us to do. And lastly, I want to talk to those today who may have never come to know him the first time. See, this gives us good instruction. The reality is I think God today works the same way he did with Cain. I think God will come to you and he will tell you in your heart, you don't know me. You don't belong to me. You've never truly 
put your faith in me. You've never trusted me. Or you may accept that I am who I am, but I haven't heard an apology. I haven't accepted your apology. See, in that situation, sin does have us completely entangled. You don't have to walk out your door. You don't have to invite it in. It's already got you. There's two ways to be in this life. One, sin has you. The other, Jesus Christ has you, and there is no in-between. There is no in-between. And the reality is, you can struggle with this sin. You can try and do it the right way. You can try and live a good life. You can do all, quote-unquote, the right things. And in fact, everyone on the outside may think you're doing really well at it. But the reality is, sin, until God releases you, is ruling your life and will kill, steal, and destroy everything you have until the very end, at which time you'll be punished eternally for having sinned against God. So what do you do? Well, you go back and you don't do what Cain did. You don't ignore God. You don't keep your head down and then get mad at someone else who's doing something better than you. You don't go on sinning. You do what we see in the scriptures over and over again when God speaks to you. You acknowledge that he is right and the rightful God. You put your faith in him and you repent to him until he has saved you. It seems very simple. It's really hard. You know why it's hard? Pride. Arrogance. So interesting. If you read chapter 4, you see echoes of chapter 2. You see some of the same things that were said and talked about in chapter 4 that Eve said and the serpent said to her, oh, it won't, you won't really die. You see the same pride. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be stuck in your pride. I don't want you to be stuck with sin crouching at the door waiting to have you. You need to deal with it. You need to acknowledge that it's there. You need to seek God in faith. You need to confess. And so I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning as we sing a hymn.